Section 12 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Thomas Carlyle, Part 3. While collecting materials for his life of Cromwell, Carlyle became deeply interested in the movements of the Chartists, composed chiefly of working men with socialistic tendencies. He was called a radical and he did believe in a radical reform of men's lives, especially of the upper classes who showed but little sympathy for the poor. He was not satisfied with the Whigs, who believed that the reform bill would usher in a political millennium. He had more sympathy with the conservative Tories than the liberal Whigs, but his opinions were not acceptable to either of the great political parties. They alike distrusted him. Even Mill had, a year before, declined an article on the working classes for his review, the Westminster. Carlyle took it to Lockhart of the Quarterly, but Lockhart was afraid to publish it. Mill, then about to leave the Westminster, wished to insert it as a final shout, but Carlyle declined, and in 1839 expanded his article into a book called Chartism, which was rapidly sold and loudly noticed. It gave but little satisfaction, however. It offended the conservatives by exposing sores that could not be healed, while on the other hand, the radicals did not wish to be told that men were far from being equal, that in fact they were very unequal, and that society could not be advanced by debating clubs or economical theories, but only by gifted individuals as instruments of divine providence, guiding mankind by their superior wisdom. These views were expanded in a new course of lectures on heroes and hero worship, and subsequently printed the most able and suggestive of all Carlyle's lectures, delivered in the spring of 1840 with great éclat. He never appeared on the platform again. Lecturing, as we have said, was not to his taste. He preferred to earn his living by his pen, and his writings had now begun to yield a comfortable support. He received on account of them 400 pounds from America alone, thanks to the influence of his friend Emerson. Carlyle now began to weary of the distraction of London life and pined for the country. But his wife would not hear a word about it. She had had enough of the country at Craig and Puttock. Meanwhile, preparations for the life of Cromwell went on slowly, varied by his visits to his relatives in Scotland, travels on the continent, and interviews with the distinguished men. His mind at this period, 1842, was most occupied with the sad condition of the English people, Everywhere, riots, disturbances, physical suffering, and abject poverty among the masses, for the corn laws had not then been repealed, and to Carlyle's vision there was a most melancholy prospect ahead, not revolution, but universal degradation and the reign of injustice. This sad condition of the people was contrasted in his mind with what it had been centuries before, as it appeared from an old book which he happened to read, Jocelyn's Chronicles, which painted English life in the twelfth century. He fancied that the world was going on from bad to worse, and in this gloomy state of mind he wrote his Past and Present, which appeared in 1843, and created a storm of anger as well as admiration. It was a sort of protest against the political systems of economy then so popular. Lockhart said of it that he could accept none of his friend's inferences except one, that we were all wrong and were all like to be damned. Gloomy and satirical as the book was, it made a great impression on the thinkers of the day, while it did not add to the author's popularity. It seemed as if he were a prophet of wrath, an Ishmaelite whose hand was against everybody. He offended all political parties, the Tories by his radicalism, and the radicals by his scorn of their formulas, 
the high churchman by his protestantism and the low churchman by evident unorthodoxy yet all parties and sects admitted that much he said was true while at the same time they had no sympathy with his fierce ravings for ten years after the publication of the french revolution carlyle assumed the functions of a prophet hurling anathemas and pronouncing woes to his mind everything was alike disjointed or false or pretentious in view of which he uttered groans and hisses and maledictions the very name of a society designed to ameliorate evils seemed to put him into a passion every reformer appeared to him to be a blind teacher of the blind exeter hall then the scene of every variety of social and religious and political discussion was to him a veritable pandemonium everybody at that period of agitation and reform was giving lectures and everybody went to hear them and carlyle ridiculed them all alike as peddlers of nostrums to heal diseases which were incurable he lived in an atmosphere of disdain the english people said he number some thirty millions mostly fools his friends expostulated with him for giving utterance to such bitter expressions and for holding such gloomy views john mill was mortally offended and walked no more with him de quincey said you have made a new hole in your society kettle how do you propose to mend it yet all this while carlyle had not lost faith in providence as it might seem but felt that god would inflict calamities on peoples for their sins he resembled savonarola more than he did voltaire what seemed to some to be mockeries were really the earnest protests of his soul against universal corruption to be followed by downward courses in retribution his mind was morbid from intense reflection on certain evils and from his physical ailments he doubtless grieved and alienated his best friends by his diatribes against popular education and free institutions he even appeared to lean to despotism and the rule of tyrants provided only they were strong thus carlyle destroyed his influence even while he moved the mind to reflection it was seen and felt that he had no sympathy with many movements designed to benefit society and that he cherished utter scorn for many active philanthropists in his bitterness wrath and disdain he became himself intolerant in some of his wild utterances he brought upon himself almost universal reproach as when he said i never thought the rights of negroes worth much discussing nor the rights of man in any form a sentiment which militated against his whole philosophy in this strange and unhappy mood of mind the latter-day pamphlets past and present and other essays were written which undermined the reverence in which he had been held these were the blots on his great career which may be traced to sickness and a disordered mind in fact carlyle cannot be called a sound writer at any period he contradicts himself he is a great painter a prose poet a satirist not a philosopher perhaps the most suggestive writer of the nineteenth century often giving utterance to the grandest thoughts yet not a safe guide at all times since he is inconsistent and full of exaggerations the morbid and unhealthy tone of carlyle's mind at this period may be seen by an extract from one of his letters to sterling i see almost nobody i avoid sight rather and study to consume my own smoke i wish you would build me among your buildings some small profit chamber fifteen feet square with a flue for smoking sacred from all noises of dogs cocks and pianofortes engaging some dumb old woman to light a fire for me daily and boil some kind of a kettle thus quaintly he expressed his desire for uninterrupted solitude where he could work to advantage he was then engaged on cromwell and the few persons with whom he exchanged letters show how retired was his life 
His friends were also few, although he could have met as many persons as pleased him. He was too much absorbed with work to be what is called a society man, but what society he did see was of the best. At last, Carlyle's task on the life of Oliver Cromwell was finished in August 1845, when he was fifty years of age. It was the greatest contribution to English history, Mr. Froude thinks, which has been made in the present century. Carlyle was the first to make Cromwell and his age intelligible to mankind. Indeed, he reversed the opinions of mankind respecting that remarkable man, which was a great accomplishment. No one doubts the genuineness of the portrait. Cromwell was almost universally supposed, fifty years ago, to be a hypocrite as well as a usurper. In Carlyle's hands, he stands out visionary, perhaps, but yet practical, sincere, earnest, God-fearing, a patriot devoted to the good of his country. Carlyle rescued a great historical personage from the accumulated slanders of two centuries, and did his work so well that no hostile criticisms have modified his verdict. He has painted a picture which is immortal. The insight, the sagacity, the ability, and the statesmanship of Cromwell are impressed upon the minds of all readers. That England never had a greater or more enlightened ruler, everybody is now forced to admit, and not merely a patriotic, but a Christian ruler, who regarded himself simply as the instrument of providence. People still differ as to the cause in which Cromwell embarked, and few defend the means he used to accomplish his ends. He does not stand out as a perfect man. He made mistakes and committed political crimes which can be defended only on grounds of expediency. But his private life was above reproach, and he died in the triumph of Christian faith, after having raised his country to a higher pitch of glory than had been seen since the days of Queen Elizabeth. The faults of the biographer center in confounding right with might, and this conspicuously false doctrine is the leading defect of the philosophy of Carlyle, runs through all his writings, and makes him an unsound teacher. If this doctrine be true, then all the usurpers of the world from Caesar to Napoleon can be justified. If this be true, then an irresistible imperialism becomes the best government for mankind. It is but fair to say that Carlyle himself denied this inference. Writing of Lecky's having charged him with believing in the divine right of strength, he says, With respect to that poor heresy of might being the symbol of right to a certain great and venerable author, I shall have to tell Lecky one day that quite the converse or reverse is the great and venerable author's real opinion, namely, that right is the eternal symbol of might. In fact, he probably never met with a son of Adam more contemptuous of might except when it rests on the above origin. Yet the impression of all his strongest work is the other way. Certain no other kindred doctrines may be inferentially drawn from Carlyle's defense of Cromwell, namely that a popular assembly is incapable of guiding successfully the destinies of a nation, that behind all constitutions lies an ultimate law of force, that majorities as such have no more right to rule than kings and nobles, that the strongest are the best, and the best are the strongest, that the right to rule lies with those who are right in mind and heart, as he supposed Cromwell to be, and who can execute their convictions. Such teachings, it need not be shown, are at war with the whole progress of modern society and the enlightened opinion of mankind. The great merit of Carlyle's history is in the clearness and vividness with which he paints his hero, and the exposure of the injustice with which he has been treated by historians. It is an able vindication of Cromwell's character, but the deductions drawn from his philosophy lead to absurdity and are an insult to the understanding of the world. It was about this time, on the conclusion of the Cromwell, when he was on the summit of his literary fame, and the world began to shower its favors upon him, 
that Carlyle's days were saddened by a domestic trouble which gave him inexpressible solicitude and grief. His wife, with whom he had lived happily for so many years, was exceedingly disturbed on account of his intimate friendship with Lady Ashburton. Nothing can be more plaintive and sadly beautiful than the letters he wrote to her on the occasion of her starting off in a fit of spleen after a stormy scene to visit friends at a distance. And what is singular is that we do not find in those letters, when his soul was moved to its very depths, any of his peculiarities of style. They are remarkably simple as well as serious. Carlyle's friendship for one of the most brilliant and cultivated women of England, which the breadth of scandal never for a moment assailed, was reasonable and natural, and was a great comfort to him. He persisted in enjoying it, knowing that his wife disliked it. In this matter, which was a cloud upon his married life, and saddened the family hearth for years, Mrs. Carlyle was doubtless exacting and unreasonable, though some men would have yielded the point for the sake of a faithful wife, or even for peace. There are those who think that Carlyle was selfish in keeping up an intercourse which was hateful to his wife, but the Ashburtons were the best friends that Carlyle ever had after he became famous, and in their various country seats he enjoyed a hospitality rarely extended to poor literary men. There he met in enjoyable and helpful intercourse, when he could not have seen them in his own house, some of the most distinguished men of the day, men of rank and influence, as well as those of literary fame. Until this intimacy with the Ashburtons, no domestic disturbances of note had taken place in the Carlyle household. The wife may occasionally have been sad and lonely when her husband was preoccupied with his studies, but this she ought to have anticipated in marrying a literary man whose only support was from his pen. Carlyle, too, was an inveterate smoker, and she detested tobacco, so that he did not spend as much time in the parlor as he did in his library, where he could smoke to his heart's content. On the whole, however, their letters show genuine mutual affection and as much connubial happiness as is common to most men and women, with far more of intimate intellectual and spiritual congeniality. Carlyle certainly, in all his letters, ever speaks of his wife with admiration and gratitude. He regarded her as not only the most talented woman that he had ever known, but as the one without whom he was miserable. They were the best of comrades and companions from first to last, when at home together. For a considerable period after the publication of The Life of Cromwell, Carlyle was apparently idle. He wrote for several years nothing of note except his Latter-day Pamphlets, 1850, and A Life of His Friend John Sterling, 1851, to whom he was tenderly attached. It would seem that he was now in easy circumstances, although he retained to the end his economical habits. He amused himself with traveling and with frequent visits to distinguished people in the country. If not a society man, he was much sought. He dined often at the tables of the great and personally knew almost every man of note in London. He sturdily took his place among distinguished men, the intellectual peer of the greatest. He often met Macaulay, but was not intimate with him. I doubt if they even exchanged visits. The reason for this may have been that they were not congenial to each other in anything, and that the social position of Macaulay was immeasurably higher than Carlyle's. It would be hard to say which was the greater man. It was not until 1852 or 1853, when Carlyle was 58, that he seriously set himself to write his Life of Friedrich II, his last great work, on which he perseveringly labored for thirteen years. It is an exhaustive history of the Prussian hero, and is regarded in Germany as the standard work on that great monarch in general. The first volume came out in 1858, and the last in 1865. 
It is a marvel of industry and accuracy, the most elaborate of all his works, but probably the least read because of its enormous length and scholastic pedantries. It might be said to bear the same relation to his French Revolution that Romola does to Adam Bede. In this book, Carlyle made no new revelations, as he did in his life of Cromwell. He did not change, essentially, the opinion of mankind. Frederick the Great, in his hands, still stands out as an unscrupulous public enemy, a robber, and a tyrant. His crimes are only partially redeemed by his heroism, especially when Europe was in arms against him. There is the same defect in this great work that there is in the life of Cromwell, the inculcation of the doctrine that might makes right, that we may do evil that good may come, thus putting expediency above eternal justice and palliating crimes because of their success. It is difficult to account for Carlyle's decline in moral perceptions when we consider that his personal life was so far above reproach. Although the life of Friedrich is a work of transcendent industry, it did not add to Carlyle's popularity, which had been undermined by his bitter attacks on society in his various pamphlets. At this period, he was still looked up to with reverence as a great intellectual giant, but that love for him, which had been felt by those who were aroused to honest thinking by his earlier writings, had passed away. A new generation looked upon him as an embittered and surly old man. His services were not forgotten, but he was no longer a favorite no longer an inspiring guide. His writings continued to stimulate thought, but were no longer regarded as sound. Commonplace people never did like him, probably because they never understood him. His admirers were among the young, the enthusiastic, the hopeful, the inquiring, and when their veneration passed away, there were few left to uphold his real greatness and noble character. One might suppose that Carlyle would have been unhappy to alienate so many persons, especially old admirers. In fact, I apprehend that he cared little for anybody's admiration or flattery. He lived in an atmosphere so infinitely above small and envious and detracting people that he was practically independent of human sympathies. Had he been doomed to live with commonplace persons, he might have sought to conciliate them. But he really lived in another sphere, not perhaps higher than theirs, but eternally distinct, in the sphere of abstract truth. To him, most people were either babblers or bores. What did he care for their envious shafts or even for their honest disapprobation? Hence, the last days of this great man were not his best days, although he was not without honor. He was made Lord Rector of the University of Edinburgh and delivered a fine address on the occasion. And later, Disraeli, when Prime Minister, offered him knighthood with the Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath and a pension, which he declined. The author of Sartor Resartus did not care for titles. He preferred to remain simply Thomas Carlyle. While Carlyle was in the midst of honors in Edinburgh, his wife, who had long been in poor health, suddenly died April 21, 1866. This affliction was a terrible blow to Carlyle, from which he never recovered. It filled out his measure of sorrow, deep and sad, and hard to be borne. His letters after this are full of pathos and plaintive sadness. He could not get resigned to his loss, for his wife had been more and more his staff and companion as years had advanced. The queen sent her sympathy, but nothing could console him. He was then seventy-one years old, and his work was done. His remaining years were those of loneliness and sorrow and suffering. He visited friends, but they amused him not. He wrote reminiscences, but his isolation remained. He sought out charities when he himself was the object of compassion, a sad old man who could not sleep. He tried to interest himself in politics, but time hung heavy on his hands. He read much and thought more, but assumed no fresh literary work. 
he had enough to do to correct proof sheets of new editions of his works. His fiercest protests were now against atheism in its varied forms. In 1870, Mr. Erskine, his last Scotch friend, died. In 1873, he writes, more and more dreary, barren, base, and ugly seem to me all the aspects of this poor, diminishing quack world. Fallen openly anarchic, doomed to a death which one can wish to be speedy. Poor old man. He has survived his friends, his pleasures, his labors, almost his fame. He is sick and weary of life, which to him has become a blank. Pity it is, he could not have died when Cromwell was completed. He drags on in his forlorn life without wife or children and with only a few friends, in disease and ennui and discontent, almost alone, until he is eighty-five. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps on this petty pace from day to day, to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The relief came at last. It was on a cold day in February 1881 that Lecky, Frauda, and Tyndall, alone of his London friends, accompanied his mortal remains to Eckel Fetchen, where he was buried by the graves of his father and mother. He might have rested in the vaults of Westminster, but he chose to lie in a humble churchyard near where he was born. In future years, says his able and interesting biographer, Scotland will have raised a monument over his remains, but no monument is needed for one who has made an eternal memorial for himself in the hearts of all to whom truth is the dearest possession. For giving his soul to the common cause, he won for himself a wreath which will not fade, and a tomb the most honorable, not where his dust is decaying, but where his glory lives in everlasting remembrance. For of illustrious men all the earth is the sepulchre, and it is not the inscribed column in their own land which is the record of their virtues, but the unwritten memories of them in the hearts and minds of all mankind. Thomas Carlyle will always have an honorable place among the great men of his time. He was preeminently a profound thinker, a severe critic, a great word painter, a man of uncommon original gifts who aroused and instructed his generation. In the literal sense, he was neither philosopher nor poet nor statesman, but a man of genius, who cast his searching and fearless glance into all creeds, systems, and public movements denouncing hypocrisies, shams, and lies with such power that he lost friends almost as fast as he made them, without, however, losing the respect and admiration of his literary rivals, or of the ablest and best men both in England and America. Although no believer in the scientific philosophies of our time, he was a great breaker of ground for them, having been a pioneer in the cause of honest thinking and plain speaking. His passion for truth and courage in declaring his own vision of it were potent for spiritual liberty. He stands as one of the earliest and stoutest champions of that revolt against authority in religious, intellectual, and social matters, which has chiefly marked the 19th century. End of section 12.